Hi, I'm Dr. Dan Gardner, and I talk about traumatic brain injury recovery. And today I'm pleased to be speaking with Dr. Arnold Purish, neuropsychologist. Traumatic brain injury recovery. You started to say what areas of cognitive functioning you look at, what parts of the brain you want to light up with these tests. Can you go over that again and, and list those for me? Well, sure. And I would say that it's not all just cognitive. The neuropsychological evaluation is looking at the functioning in general. And so when we think cognition, we think intelligence, we think learning and memory, we think language, we think executive functions, we think perception, things along those lines. But people also deal with the world with sensory motor functions. So we look at things like coordination and dexterity. We look at various sensory skills as well. And part of the evaluation also is looking at things like emotional and personality variables. The problem with that is that it's very difficult to come up with a test of the brain that can tap into areas that look at personality. Uh, mm -hmm. There's some areas of the brain. One area is, is right behind the eyes. It's called the orbital frontal region of the brain. And when you damage that, and you just purely damage that, frequently your cognition is, it can be perfectly intact. But that's a region of the brain that allows us to regulate our emotions. It's very important in impulse control, in inhibiting or damping down our responses. And people like that can begin to feel angry, for example. And that anger may bloom into full rage. And then it runs its course and they return back to normal. And the cognitive brain says, huh, shouldn't have done that, okay? But the neuropsychological exam tries to look at as much as we can. Some of it can't be tested, and some of the things that can be tested are not necessarily cognitive in nature. So a long way around the cognitive sorts of things. We are looking at perception. Now, perception is different than sensation. People see, they hear, they feel. But ultimately, they process what they see, they feel, they hear. They may make out that there's certain sounds that have some sort of meaning or voice tones. When you see things, oftentimes we may be looking at maps. We may be looking at very complicated visual stimuli in the world. And so to interpret that goes beyond seeing. We first check out whether or not the basic senses are okay, but then if they are, once they get into the brain, we wanna see how the brain perceives them. In other words, interprets them. We look at language and language could be how well you express yourself, whether you're finding words, whether you can speak fluently, whether what you say is spoke in a comprehensible way. We look at people's ability to comprehend what's said to them, learning and memory. So we will give tests of learning verbal material, such as like when someone says something to you, how well can you hold on to this information later on? So we have immediate and delayed memory. We look at whether a person has forgotten something or whether they just can't recall it from, from the memory store. So we call that retrieval versus recognition. So lots of times people can't remember things, but if you give them a little hint, they can. So it's not really a problem with memory storage, but somehow or another, they've forgotten where they've put it. So, mm -hmm. so look at that. We also look at nonverbal memory. So if you're looking at pictures or faces or things along those lines, which happens in daily life, we do the same sort of thing. There's the IQ test we talked about. There's tests of executive function, so problem solving and reasoning. So mm -hmm. in daily life, oftentimes we encounter situations that may be a bit ambiguous, we haven't come across before, they're a bit novel, or they may be something we've encountered before, but there's a on it. And so the intact and active brain 
tries to take what it knows to bear upon solving the problem. So we have tests that put people in somewhat novel situations. When we look at intellectual functioning, lots of times we are assessing the sorts of things people have learned through experience. So that if you've had a high degree of schooling, maybe your vocabulary is pretty good, or you're asked facts about what's going on in the world or history, that's pretty good. But it doesn't really touch to a greater extent what happens when we approach situations in the real world that are new or ambiguous or you've experienced before, but this may be a little bit different twist on it. We ultimately have to take what we know and basically bring that to bear upon solving a situation that we don't know. How do we proceed in situations that are new or ambiguous? So we give tests that give people new or ambiguous situations and see how they go about solving it. So that you can't test everything, but ultimately by doing things like that, you have a sense of if someone was to encounter something new or novel in the real world, how might we expect them to go about it and how successful might they be? Now, one of the critical things when we look at brain functioning, it's really cognitively, we have sort of a scaffolding. It's in a hierarchical order. So people are in a coma. You're not testing them cognitively. If you've ever been woken up from a deep sleep in the middle of the night, you're just too out of it to really do anything cognitive. If you've had two hours sleep the night before, you might be able to function, but you're a lot slower, you lose your train of thought, you feel somewhat muddled. What I'm basically saying is one's level of arousal is very important. And arousal directly relates to how well we can focus, pay attention, and concentrate. So if someone has very poor concentration, ability to focus, they're not gonna be able to remember things you tell them because their mind's gonna be wandering. So we also have to look at that. So we look at a number of different measures that look at how well they can focus, how well they can manipulate information in their head. Mental math, for example, if you're trying to figure out how much uh, tip should be on something, or you have to figure out how much change you should be getting back, what have you. That is much more of a concentration sort of task. We call that working memory. So we look at things along those lines. And ultimately as well, we're looking at speed of performance. How fast someone does it? Because someone who can complete a task that has intellectual demands quickly is doing it differently than someone who can solve the same task, but it takes them three times as long. And this is a particular issue where we get into it a little bit more with traumatic brain injury. I can't tell you how many school-age kids I've seen that may have A's or B's before an injury, and then I see them two years later, A's and B's, and so you think, okay, anything wrong? They go, well, I'm studying four hours a night where I used to study an hour a night, and that has real consequences for daily life. So we call that proficiency. Proficiency is basically how well you do something as a function of how quickly you do it. If you do it very quick, you're very proficient. You know, some smart people sometimes just seem to get things like that, and other people have to mull over it a bit. So we also need to look at not only attention concentration, but also how quickly people could put things together. There's a number of things we look at, not all cognitive, but we certainly do look at a lot of cognitive things. Please let me know in the comments what questions you have and what other topics you'd like me to discuss.